Welcome to High Noon, where we talk about controversial subjects with interesting people. And my interesting person today is Madeline Kearns, who is a staff writer over at National Review. She's also a frequent contributor to The Spectator. You might have seen her cover story over there recently. Um, and, and in the past and currently, she writes quite a bit, although she writes on all kinds of subjects. Um, she writes quite a bit on the subject of, let's say, uh, feminine allure or feminine strength and whether or not those two things are contradictory, whether we have perhaps lost something um, in, in our current generation of women, um, we have lost both the allure and the strength that used to hold up uh, women of the past uh, in, in pursuit of a, a type of equality that perhaps is illusory. Um, but that has been one of her frequent subjects. So welcome, Madeline Kearns to High Noon. It's so great to have you on. Thanks for having me. Uh, I'll start with a really simple question that actually you once asked me on a panel for National Review, which is, what is a woman? Maddie Kearns, define womanhood for us. So I think if you looked this up in the dictionary, you would find a concise uh, definition, adult human female. Female is, of course, a biological category. So females are marked uh, as being distinct from males because they have XX chromosomes and female reproductive organs. And uh, females, like all other mammals, human beings, uh, carry children, uh, they just state and produce offspring. Um, of course, as a social um, concept, there's a lot more to being a woman than, than merely biology. But I start with biology because we live in an age which is obviously very deeply confused about just that basic biological category to begin with. And until we can establish that factual basis of what a woman is, it's very difficult to actually have any meaningful conversation about the social, sexual uh, and psychological markers of femininity and what it means to be a female. Yeah, because, of course, there's that complicated uh, social legitimately this, this much I'll give sort of the. Um, the other team, so to speak, the, the the construction of sex team. Obviously, one performs to some degree femininity and masculinity within a society, and that's connected to biological sex, but not in like a, a, a direct one-to-one -one way, right? We all know, uh, you know, men who might be a little more feminine or present themselves as feminine in society, women who present themselves as more masculine in society, um, and and what those those concepts and how those concepts co connect, whether how you present yourself um, in society and how you relate to masculinity or femininity is obviously something somewhat different than one's biological sex. But do you think that they're sort of wholly different the way that they're put on the the gender unicorn? Right, you have one axis that's how you present yourself and and your self conceptualization, and then the other axis that is. I mean, they say the biological sex is not a binary; it's a, a spectrum. Uh, but do you think those two elements are wholly unrelated, or is how let's let's restrict it to women for a minute? Is femininity a essential part of being a woman? Well, there's there's obviously overlap with both the nature and the nurture, and I think this is this is just common sense and obvious by the, the by the arguments, the disproven arguments of people who take the opposing view. So, the biological essentialists, and there aren't really very many of them now. I don't think are are people who would, or at least people who are characterised to be saying that because a woman is a woman, she therefore cannot, for example, write good literature, compose good music. Her brain's too small. She's just they can't do that. And there have, of course, been people throughout history who have made those types of arguments. If those people are 
still make our people are still making arguments like that. They're very much on the fringe. What is more common is the, the people who are making the argument that it's entirely socially constructed. And what's slightly ironic is these people tend to meet up um, in the same ludicrous conclusions. So, for example, the feminists were obviously very upset in the 20th century uh, about stereotyping. And some of some of that upset, I slightly understand. If you look at sort of advertisements from the 1950s, it was a bit silly and overwrought. But of course, now we have the the idea that if a, a little girl plays with trucks and dresses like a boy, is a tomboy, uh, she might really be a boy because those things are markers of masculinity. So that's the the social constructionist becomes essentialist in its own way. Obviously, the truth is a bit of both, and your personality, I, I'm sure, is has predispositions found in your genetics. I'm sure that um, if you're particularly aggressive, which is less common in females than, than males as a category, uh, there might be some sort of biological component as to, to why that is the case. But but it's more of a of a disposition than it is a, a determination. And I think that the tragedy of the way that we currently conceive of these things is that we for all our talk of getting people out of boxes, we actually box people in probably more than ever with this gender fluidity stuff, which denies common sense, it denies biology, and it is not actually helpful when dealing with categories of, of people. Um, it, we, we tend now to focus on sort of the exception rather than the, than the general patterns that you can quite easily observe in, in sociological studies about the types of choices that women make when left to their own devices, even in very progressive countries. Do you think do you think it's kind of crippling our self-understanding as women, the fact that um, we're not supposed to connect various aspects of our personalities or, um, you know, certain traits uh, with being a woman? Um, do you think that that somehow makes us lacking, especially, you know, as a generation, let's say uh, millennials and Gen Z, do you think that makes us in some way lacking in self-understanding of, of what it means if we're all kind of on this endless map, right? Um, and, and you can put your dot anywhere and the, the combination of traits that you observe in yourself could could be, it's, it's, we're supposed to imagine it's a scatter plot, right? Like that it's completely random, but that seems to leave a lot of room for self-misunderstanding. Yeah, I think that's definitely the case. And that's why you get into uh, all sorts of problems with uh, the way that men and women relate to one another. Because women don't even know how to relate to themselves sometimes. They, they can't really understand, uh, for example, that because they bear the brunt of reproduction, they obviously can get pregnant. Even when you eliminate uh, unwanted pregnancy, either through contraception or abortion, you're not actually changing the way that they're wired. So, for example, women um, release Oxy Oxycontin much at much higher rates than males as a bonding hormone. Uh, this is one influence that makes them have a harder time with casual sex, for example, than men do. And it's it's things like this where we we tell women like you can be just like a man you can have sex just like a man that was obviously the message of something like sex in the city and women do this and they find that it's not making them feel as liberated as was promised or as happy as was promised 
And rather than join the dots, as you put it, and think, well, maybe this has something to do about my biological makeup, maybe this is less in my interests than it might be for a man, uh, the thought is that it must be a cultural problem. So it must be, you know, sort of like the consent model and men not being properly taught the consent model. Um, obviously, I'm, I'm making generalisations here. You'd really have to look at the specifics of any given case. But it is, I think, generally true that women just don't really understand themselves. There's also a really interesting uh, observation by actually was an art critic, um, John Bergman, who who noted that women that men notice women, but that women notice being noticed. And I just think it's a sort of fascinating difference in the way that you relate to yourself. If you're considering yourself through the eyes of an admirer, uh, you used the word performance earlier. I think that's that's a good word for this. It's you're considering uh, how to how your allure um, furthers your interests. So we don't really have that understanding though, because we've we've kind of spayed and neutered everything culturally, um, which I don't think is progress. Um, how do you think that allure? If we're talking kind of a, a Camille Pollyan style. Uh, feminine power, right? Um, like allure, like we think about, you know, in sort of the negative, we think about femme fatales, uh, the truly feminine power and how it can be used appropriately or inappropriately uh, between women and men. Um, you know, how, how does that relate with strength, right? Because you have this really fantastic piece I want to read um, that you wrote a while back in the first round of, of Cuomo um, accusations. Um, and I just wanted to read off a paragraph or two that you wrote um, about essentially men who are uh, make advances to women that are unwanted. And you write, there's a difference between a pig and a predator and also a difference between a regular pig and a pig who is also a bully. A regular pig can often be dealt with by using a healthy dose of womanly assertiveness and gumption to be administered with swift and immediate effect. Both the pig and the predator require apprehending naturally, but to stun a pig piggish man, one normally need only splash him in the face with a cold drink. Or should such a beverage not be readily available, a hearty slap will su suffice. Um, the predator, meanwhile, requires an intervention of an altogether more drastic nature, pepper spray, frying pan, elegant silver pistol, whatever happens handiest. In any case, the point is that proportionality is the better part of valor. And as for discretion, well, that's a woman's art. Um, it seems to me that you're describing there something that seems so inaccessible uh, to modern women, which is this combination of the allure that you and I were just talking about with a kind of assertiveness um, and and strength that is uniquely feminine as opposed to um, the aggressiveness that you were talking about earlier, which is we associate with the masculine. I mean, how 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 do you think we relate these two things uh, together, this kind of femininity and at the same time possession and actual assertiveness in a way? Well, I think they, they fit together when a woman understands that she kind of has the power uh, of refusal and there's a, there's a kind of irony in modern sexual politics for want of a better phrase in that women have really never had more support societal support institutional support in order to assert themselves in this way it used to be that they really were the underdogs and really could be exploited terribly 
by uh, employers and all, all, all the rest of it. And, and actually now women have never been better educated, never been better placed to say, no, get your hands off me. We just don't encourage them to do this because we, uh, we've led them to believe that they are powerless in these situations. Um, and so when a man, because, because the, the greatest assault to you is, uh, is not somebody being presumptuous in the way that I think Cuomo was, and, and I articulated in that piece, the, the greatest assault to you is, um, is somebody violating your consent, even if they're violating your consent in a small way. Now, obviously, in common sense, they just gone by, we would understand that somebody violating your consent through rape uh, is is so much worse than somebody touching your the small of your back without your permission. Um, but because the focus now is on consent and not on the acts themselves, we've lost that sense of distinction. Also, we just don't encourage women to take it, the matter into their own hands because we've told them that there's this terrible patriarchal system which is against them so that they can't do that when in actual fact the reverse is true. They've never been better placed to stand up for themselves in these interpersonal encounters. Um, why is it? I mean, this this really seems generational here. I'm, I'm thinking about Megan Dom, who wrote kind of an ode to the sort of 90s feminist tough girl, right? Um, she's, she's Generation X. Um, I'm sort of middle to elder millennial. You're uh, five or six years younger than me. Um, so we span between, I would say, between the three of us, we span... Um, you know, Gen X and then kind of early millennial, late millennial. Um, and it really seems like the the further on we've gotten um, in the last few generations, the less women feel, ironically, even though we have those billboards with Beyonce and, you know, female empowerment um, and, and everything else, it really seems like the more time goes on, the less women feel empowered to do what you're talking about, right? To, to slap somebody who gets out of line, um, to, to throw a drink in his face or just to verbally push back hard. I mean, I'm thinking here of one particular case that, um, Megan Dom kind of, um, talked about on one of her podcasts and, um, made the rounds in terms of the title nine cases that you used to, uh, write on. And it was the case of a college woman, um, who went to a man's, uh, dorm, and got naked in bed with him and didn't want to have sex with him, um, but found that it was, quote, too awkward to, like, make that known in a strong way. Um, and and the conclusion of this case was that the man had overstepped um, in assuming that because she was naked in his bed uh, that, that, you know, she was uh, DTF, as they could say, right? Um and, and rather than, but it, it was something that was so difficult for Megan to understand, right? The idea that a woman would feel awkward about just telling a man, even in that kind of situation, no. I mean, what is it about millennials and Gen Z that we seem to have totally lost that generational quality? Because I think even as early, as late as Gen X, there was this sort of empowered woman figure who was less concerned about male opinion and therefore not at all concerned about, for example, laughing at male advances or pushing back against them when they were um, unwanted. I mean, at what point and why did we lose this ability? I think it, it's happened since we we started being more okay with promiscuity. It, it's, it's an odd sort of quirk of this, but I, I think that women, it, it became 
at some point in history, it was totally reasonable and expected that a woman would decline sexual advances, in large part because of what I mentioned before, they bore the brunt of pregnancy. And so there was a lot for her to lose and not much for her to gain, especially in a one night stand, in terms of these casual hookups. But we, we changed that and we deliberately changed that because we thought it would be liberating. And so uh, it became harder in a, in a social setting to, to decline for, for a reason that wouldn't just be wounding the man. It would just be like, you know, it's you. I don't want to have sex with you. Whereas before, I think women, it would just be, I don't want to have sex because I have a lot to lose here. And until you commit to me in a way that uh, makes me feel safe and secure, I'm not going to, I'm not going to do that. Um, now it's become quite personal. And so, we, you know, we have a, a popular culture that sort of mocks uh, virginity and abstinence is like one of the one of the last taboos, funnily enough. And and so it, it's just expected. It's just expected that sex is really not that big of a deal. The only thing that's a big deal is whether or not you consent to it. But we haven't given any guidance on what's a good idea to consent to and what isn't. Um, anything goes, literally anything. If, if you're into sadomasochism or whatever you want that's fine as long as you consent it but I think that young women especially need a little more than that they need to be told well what's in it for me when's it a good idea when's it not a good idea so that when they get into these sorts of uh, romantic encounters they're clear in their own minds about what their boundaries are because the problem is they're not clear in the boundaries and then something happens that makes them feel uncomfortable. They don't know why it makes them feel uncomfortable because they've never really thought it through and nobody's ever talked to them about it in a serious way. And so they think, oh, it'd be terribly rude of me uh, to, to decline this at this point. So then they end up being resentful because they gave more than they wanted to and they feel sort of tricked or uh, coerced, even though it might not have been... Um, that they were tricked or coerced is certainly not from the man's perspective because men require uh, communication as much as women do. It, it's a, it's you need to be told this this is too far. This is my boundary. You've crossed it. Please stop. And if you don't use words, I'm not sure how they're supposed to pick up on your body language, especially if you're talking about somebody who doesn't know you that well. Um, so I, th- I think we've just we've just not really given uh, women enough. Uh, context uh, or encourage them to have enough context we live in a society where everything's permitted nothing's forgiven and everything being permitted is really bad for women and nothing being forget and everything um being far like taken as too far is really bad for for men so it's just a lose-lose situation how how do we dig ourselves out of this whole right that you're kind of blaming the sexual revolution uh for how do we dig our because i I think one of the things that's interesting about the last few years is how the left and right have kind of come to the same conclusion although they have wildly different ways of of dealing with that conclusion i don't think anybody is any longer in the camp of the oh you know the way that sex relations work right now in 2020 or 2021 um you know, this is good. This is how relations between men and women should be. Um, and you you have the right 
making some of the critiques that you've made, which is basically saying we need to return to a more biological understanding of the differences between the sexes. And then the consequences of those, that biological understanding is, is that, you know, as you say, that a totally liberated sexual ethos might actually be, have negative consequences for women, right. Or more negative consequences for women than it does for men. Um, but I mean, how do we dig ourselves out? Right. Because it, it, there was this article in the New York Times um, just a few weeks ago where the um, it was about basically sex negativity, right? Um, the end of sex positivity among Gen Z. And so I think that's just one more point in the arsenal of, oh, this is this is actually we are coming to some kind of consensus that this, whatever it is, this is not good, particularly for women. But do you think that there's any constructive way to take that sense um, among especially young women that this isn't good and turn it into something that's actually productive? Or do you think it's going to continue, that energy is going to continue to be channeled into the kind of legalistic solutions that, as you say, sort of overly punish men for not being able to read something as subtle as, you know, women's discomfort without being really told in any any clear way? I think it's going to be difficult to undo in part because we're so committed to the ideological premises that underpin this. So I think until we accept that women actually have quite a lot of power and responsibility for, for themselves, not, not for other people's behaviour, of course, but they have a lot of power and responsibility in these encounters, um, that this patriarchy concept isn't really all that helpful and that men have feelings too and that uh, it's it's nice to remember that when you're rejecting somebody, uh, which we used to be pretty good at actually, we used to be quite tactful. Uh, you know, not not any longer because the the man in question is a is a symbol, a reminder of this terrible force, this patriarchal force. So you can be as brutal as you like, um, and and unfortunately, I, I just think we're we're so committed to that ideology, and I think we're so committed to that ideology because it doesn't force you to take any sort of accountability at all. Um, you're you're ever the victim. It's always somebody else's uh, fault. Things go wrong, and uh, and we, we're we've bought into the idea that um, collective guilt uh, is is a useful concept. It's a useful way of, of framing complicated uh, idios, idiosyncratic interpersonal encounters. Um, so, sorry, it doesn't really give you any sort of solutions. I think the, the only thing I can really suggest is that people when raising children or if they're somebody who works with young people just kind of urge caution and, and say you know sex, sex is a great thing and we don't we don't want to be puritans and we don't want you to be passive and, uh, and and terrified of a natural part of life but it is also kind of a serious thing as well it's it can create new people um it can create a lot of problems it makes your life a lot more complicated as so you want to think very seriously about the kind of situations that you get yourself in uh, this used to be something that you would get uh, if if not um directly by the birds and the bees chat but you'd at least get through good stories and literature i mean sex was what launched a thousand ships uh you know it's it's what fills 800 pages of anna Karenina. it's a it's a really powerful thing and and something that should be taken seriously even in its positive aspects and not only taken seriously in its negative aspects which is where you get into the failures of consent only models 
do you think that that's connected? That because I can't think of, um, and maybe I, I just haven't read enough modern literature, but uh, can you think of any sort of stories? It seems like the the genre, the literary genre that exists right now. Um, is less, you know, Anna Karenina novel or even something, um, you know, more of a more positive, uh, I think maybe like Jane Eyre, right? Um, uh, something that's, that is, is quote unquote, a little bit, has a little bit of happier ending than Anna Karenina, but um, these kinds of, of stories um, about relationships between men and women and about the relation between masculinity and femininity and how women can be self-possessed um, and still feminine, but it seems like the 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 more modern form of that that type of thing is actually that self confessional essay kind of so, like uh, genre, right? Oh, yeah. the, the the New Yorker or um, the modern love section of of the New York Times, right? Where it's it's always these confessional first person essays about. Or I'm thinking here about what was that um, story, cat cat, cat man person. or yeah, cat um, something yeah. A, cat person, right? Um, about yeah. a, a relationship like a um, with an older man that you know ended up feeling in some way violative, and then it, that story seemed to really resonate with a lot of women um, in terms of their their how they feel about their past sexual encounters um, with men. I mean, what does it say about us that we've moved from you know Anna Karenina to cat person yeah no, there's there's a, a great sort of this this stuff you describe I've, I've read more more of it than I'd like to admit but it's just so dreary and confused and and by its own admission it's it's typically people who are who are depressed and unhappy and so um just their solution to this is just to do more of the same which is obviously insane uh, another one is normal people about this deeply unhappy girl who goes from unhappy relationship to unhappy relationship and it's all very toxic and um you know it, it's supposed to explore damage in a really profound way and it doesn't it's just like what she needs is she needs a really assertive friend to be like stop doing that it's making you unhappy <laughs> try something else but unfortunately that that just doesn't happen and um, another one I, I i watched recently for the purposes of review was uh a new HBO series called The Sex Lives of College Girls, uh, where these girls, sort of 18-year-olds, who describe them, well, at least one of them describes herself as sex positive, and in order to get into uh, a club, a college club, she gives hand jobs to all the men, the young men on the committee, and this is supposed to be empowering. I'm not exactly sure how, but it is. Uh, there you go. I, I, I think that there's, there's also something that happens that I think you, you actually mentioned this, this to me before and I, I read about it afterwards but Camille Piley I think has made the point that uh, when there's no taboos left and sex is really in your face all the time there's also a loss of eroticism it becomes sex becomes very unsexy and this is something we see in popular culture be it the uh, WAP stuff or whatever Lady Gaga just sort of writhing around uh on stage and I, and I think that again understanding female sexuality like we're not we're not so interested in insert tab a into slot b you know there's there's actually a lot more to female sexuality than the the mechanics of it and that too is lost when we adopt this um 
this progressive uh, agenda, and it certainly comes through in the literature. I mean, if you if you have a love story where the two people jump into bed together right away, it's not really much to build up to actually after that. Um, so you have to fill it with lots of drama, which they have in now with with series and um, certainly this sex. I think that the college like the sex lives with these college girls. The first episode. They'd already had so much sexual experience by, by the end of the first episode. I was just kind of like, I'm not really sure, just as a writer, if I was writing this, where to go from here. I mean, the, the story arc is just kind of like, you know, just completely done at this point. Um, I guess they'll just have to get more and more adventurous. But at a certain, certain point, short of sort of selling themselves, uh, I'm not really sure how they can pull that off. So... And as I've forgotten what your question was, but I hope that answered. Meandering <laughs> um, through the I think the changes in um, literature, yeah, it's got worse. And, and that was and the point. It's 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 a good point you bring up about HBO. I mean, I think the same kind of journey is taking place. I mean, you mentioned Sex in the City earlier, um, but we moved from Sex in the City to Girls, which is much much more depressing right if yeah. if sex in the city is sort of the the glittery promise of sexual liberation and this and uh the sexual revolution like i don't think sex in the city portrays the women as victims uh, they are very much sort of self possessed and and empowered and and perhaps the unrealistic part of it besides their ridiculous lifestyles as columnists and in, in manhattan but um <laughs> the 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 sort of unrealistic part of it is is exactly how much power they do seem to have um, over their their dating lives. Whereas by the time you move to girls, um, they seem to be desperately unhappy um, yeah. and confused, and all the all the adjectives that you've been using to describe this modern thing. And I'm wondering if the sex lives of college girls is now like sort of the final evolution of this. Um, but again, I mean, this has to what what can't go on forever will stop. Right. I mean, I, I'm almost worried at this point, more worried about the backlash. Like we can't, I, I can see this going one of two negative ways. <laughs> one um, that, that uh, incredibly restrictive norms become popular. Um, and, and two uh, <laughs> that, that people just sort of become so atomized um, and digital I mean, the, one of the contradictions of Gen Z seems to be that they have 10,000 sexual identities, uh, but they're actually having very little sex. Um, and we see this in all these these kinds of surveys. We see that uh, sexual activity uh, by the time you hit 25, for example, is, is much lower than it was in, in past generations. Um, you know, what's the end point of this? Is it just that it's going to become so unpleasant to interact with the opposite sex, um, that we just all become digital, uh, you know, like digital beings and, and we, we lay aside the pleasures of the flesh forever. Yes. Well, that's, that's a great, great question. And, uh, I think we are actually headed that way. Unfortunately, I think ideology does have a wonderful way of sort of interfering with actual day-to-day -day living. And of course, why is it important that the sexes get along? Well, because if they don't, then who is going to produce and rear the next generation? That's not clear. So unfortunately, I just I do see it getting worse. And I think we've already seen the fears that you've 
articulated sort of realize themselves. We've already seen this puritanical overreaction to all the wrong things. Um, it's now really, it used to be that I think it was like 20% of people met their significant other at work. And now I think people are just absolutely terrified to ask people out on a date because, you know, you, you could end up in front of a HR department. So why why risk it when you can you can do apps or or whatever else instead? And so we do have a kind of loss of um, meaningful human interaction. I think the younger generation especially are going to have this more and more because they're already facing that because of the way they socialise through social media. Uh, I, I was out for a drink recently with a friend and she was commenting that her her friend who is a bartender and has been a bartender for 15 years or so said it's really strange because it used to be that you would see people in a bar hitting on you know you'd see men in a bar going over to a group of girls and and hitting on them and you just don't see that anymore uh, you see people who are already on dates presumably but you don't see men approaching women and the the tragedy of that is that women actually I think on the whole want to be approached by men and in fact something I've, I've mentioned uh before and I, I think I think it might actually be um more widespread than I first thought is that there is a, an element of sort of showing off that goes on with this like oh men these days just bother you all the time you know I can't, like the, the objection to cat calling for example oh it's just uh, wherever I go I just can't stop being harassed by men I'm just so desirable you know there's there's an element of posturing that, that's going on it's because that's actually that's actually what women kind of want isn't it they want attention they want to be thought of as beautiful and desirable and of course they do that's that's perfectly natural um it's just unfortunate that they, they kind of want two things simultaneously which is for that to happen but then for the people who express it, who have the audacity to express it, to be punished uh, for, you know, some social um, ill that they've, they've, they've done. So I, I just I just see it getting worse and worse and worse. Um, there will always be a subsection of society who ignore these trends. I think we're probably in that. And um, I'm sure there's young people who will also realise that this is nonsense and they're not going to do it. But you do pay a social cost for doing that if you ask out the wrong person or make a move on the wrong person and they overreact terribly. So, yeah, sorry, that's just bleak. I, I don't really, I'm not positive about anything to, <laughs> in this subject. I think it's going to get worse and we're going to stop having children uh, and then we'll be replaced by cultures that do have children and those aren't all good cultures but I'll save that for another <laughs> another discussion <laughs> yeah I, I was going to ask you um to wrap it up the, the terminus but you've already alluded to it right um the, the purpose of all this sort of back and forth self-actualization understanding um is is ultimately biologically right to perpetuate the species um you know what what is I mean I, you've alluded to it here but um what are the reasons for the massive fertility decline across the West, because this is not just the United States. Um, it's not limited to particular countries in Europe. In fact, it's a pretty universal decline across the globe. It's just that other, um, other, other parts of the globe, like African countries, for example, started out at a very high fertility rate, but their fertility rates are going down 
as well. So part of this seems to be inevitable shift of the global economy away from, um, you know, an economy where it's actually positive to have a lot of children um, and economic necessity, in fact, to have a lot of children um, to an economy where you have a few children and invest a lot um, in, in their educations and uh, their futures in terms of launching them uh, into the world. But so some of it, I think, is kind of inevitable and natural. Um, but my question is why we seem to have gone from going down to a lower number of children to now in most parts of the West, that number for a lot of couples, especially um, in in our generation and, and beyond, who say that they don't want they don't want children altogether. So, um, you know what what's this? What are the reasons behind the decline, um, the, the very steep decline in the West? Uh, and if if you have any ideas for how to um, how to address that, because obviously there are economic consequences to that, there are political consequences to that as well. Yeah, I mean, there's there's lots of there's just one single reason, as you alluded to. That obviously, it's just a fact that when countries become uh, more developed, women enter the workforce, and then that changes priorities, and you get smaller families. But I think there's just also an element of people just can't be bothered. It's it's really hard work having children and raising them, and uh, I mean, for the first five years of a child's life, you're basically making sure it doesn't die. Uh, because they run around sticking their fingers in sockets and shoving things up their nose. And that's like a very full-time uh, occupation. It's very demanding. It has a effect on your sex life. It has effect on your social life. It has effect on your finances. I think a lot of people just really just can't bother with that. And I think part of the reason they can't bother is because they don't really have a clear sense of purpose of why they're living. And I think what is the, what is the way of, of addressing this? I think reminding people that they're going to die and they're really old if they're lucky. And I think few people on their, on their deathbed are thinking like, oh, you know what I really wish I'd done? I wish I'd worked more. That would have been great. You know, I think they're, they're looking to their, their social network. They're looking to their legacy. Um, and for a lot of people that has the potential to be children, um, family. And that's, if, if people remember us at all, you know, 50, 100 years after we're dead, there'll probably be people um, in our family that that remembers. And so I think there's just, we, we live in an age of sort of perpetual distraction where you don't really have to think about these things all that often um, because it's comfortable and there's lots going on. And I, 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 think, I think it's just, I think it's that. I think that it used to be people understood uh, phases of life and one of those phases that you would get married and you would have children because there's not really that much you could do with your time that's better suited to that unless you happen to be a genius and you're going to contribute massively in your field um, but I think my impression from people my own age is just that a lot of us just can't really be bothered just too much work I'll do something else so, so to be clear, uh, we're closing out on a note of optimism, which is that death is coming for us all <laughs> from, from Madeline Kearns of uh, the National Review. Yeah, so. that's right. Yeah. Which, which is a good thing because, you know, immortality would be rubbish. 
Do you not think? <laughs> um, we do seem to want the things that are are uh, not not good for us as as human beings. Um, That's true. I think how overcrowded the planet would be if if everybody was immortal. That'd be yeah, miserable. Well, that, then we might really have some Malthusian problems that uh, <laughs> the climate change folks think we have. Um, Exactly. In, in any case, uh, it was wonderful to have you, uh, Madeline Kearns. And um, where can people find your work other than at the National Review and the, at the Spectator? Uh, sure. So um, Twitter, Madeline Kearns uh, on Twitter, and then I also have a website, MadelineKearns.com, where I post some updates, especially on um, non-writing things like music and speaking appearances, that kind of thing. Yes, uh, Maddie is also a wonderful singer. She has a wonderful Christmas song that she put out last Christmas that I think it is just as relevant for this upcoming Christmas season. So she is a, a woman of many talents. I highly encourage you to go read her writing, um, both at, at the National Review and at the Spectator. Maddie, so thank you so much for coming on High Noon. Thank you for having me. And thank you to our listeners. High Noon with Inez Stepman is a production of the Independent Women's Forum. As always, you can send us comments and questions to inez.stepman at iwf.org. Please help us out by hitting the subscribe button and leaving us a comment or review on Apple Podcasts, Acast, Google Play, YouTube, or iwf.org. Be brave, and we will see you next time at High Noon.